This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of May 21st, 2017, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 430 of Defender Radio. It's Victoria Day here in Canada, and I'm not working. Clearly, I am, but I'm actually not, should anyone ask. Now, it's it's a three-day weekend here in Canada. People are away, outdoors, and generally not in their offices. Next weekend, it's Memorial Day for our friends south of the 49th, which means they'll be away, outdoors, and generally not in their offices. Rather than try to force an interview or rush one that isn't quite ready, I thought this would be a good time for me to sit, think, and record something more of a rant and a little glibber than you're probably used to with this show. If you don't know, my background is journalism. I was a print journalist for 10 years before I took the leap to the nonprofit world with the fur bears, and in that time I covered crime, politics, and environmental stories, earning 17 awards for news and editorial writing. That sounds a bit showboaty, and it's meant to. I was good at my job. Now don't get me wrong, I made mistakes, and there were and are a whole lot of people who are significantly better journalists than I ever was. My point is to give this monologue a bit of context to the point that I assure you is coming. I was a solid journalist, and people in various media-related jobs and organizations thought so too. In my time, I worked mostly for a weekly newspaper, which is also where I was the managing editor. A weekly newspaper isn't exactly the New York Times, but the stories can be challenging, particularly when it comes to the nuance of politics, or the subtlety of managing sources in a story about organized crime. The weekly format was also fortunate, as I could be a pain in the ass about my standards. Outside of the sports and entertainment sections, I wouldn't allow sensationalized headlines or leads, and my mantra, which was unpopular with management, was something I stood by at all times. I'd rather have it right than have it first. Now I write blogs, roughly 250 per year, and host this weekly podcast for the Fur Bears. Many of our press releases, op-eds, open letters, and essays that show up are also penned by me, even if my name isn't on it. This job, too, isn't exactly the New York Times, and it isn't even a weekly newspaper, to be fair. But I hold myself to the same level of professionalism in writing now that I did when I had lawyers from a massive media conglomerate always looking over my shoulder to make sure we didn't get sued. The reason I bring all of this up is that accuracy and honesty are incredibly important to me. All of the things from which I focused so heavily on protecting my readers, sensationalism, fast but inaccurate or incomplete reporting, and a lot of assumptions, are at times the primary weapon of media in their coverage of wildlife. My first major foray into the world of wildlife occurred because I was constantly receiving calls and writing about coyotes. That's how I met Leslie Sampson of Coyote Watch Canada, who has since become a good friend and is a regular guest on Defender Radio. I interviewed her to try and get more information on coyotes. The local Humane Society had limited knowledge, and the province's wildlife experts just read me their website. And in the suburbs of Toronto, there weren't a whole lot of coyote experts hanging around promoting their knowledge. The bits of information I was receiving, and witness accounts of coyote behavior, didn't really add up to me. That's why I called Leslie and asked her to provide analysis on various scenarios. We ended up going out to investigate an area where conflict had taken place. 
I was appropriately dressed for midwinter ravine and forest exploration in my trench coat and work shoes, something Leslie still teases me about all these years later. We did find what I now know to be the norm, large volumes of human-created resources circling the conflict hotspots. Organic waste bins left open with soured vegetables and meats in them were common sights. And at one backyard, the very backyard where coyotes' quote, aggressive behavior was being reported, there were actual garbage bags of human food just over the fence, on a ravine, which was an obvious wildlife corridor. I wrote about this, and people continued to believe that coyotes were waiting to carry away their children with Acme-purchased duffel bags, and life went on. I began writing more and more about wildlife, and even got a few phone calls from the brass after I both publicly and privately would correct misinformation about coyotes coming from other newspapers within the organization's umbrella. Throughout all of this, I also started reaching out and learning more about wildlife from various experts. Naturalist Michael Runtz, Camilla Fox of Project Coyote, and of course, Leslie Fox of the Fur Bears. Dr. Mark Beckoff was a wonderful interview, particularly as he introduced me to a style guide he penned with Dr. Carrie Packwood Freeman, another Defender Radio guest, called Giving Voice to the Voiceless, Incorporating Non-Human Animal Perspectives as Journalistic Sources. That paper, which you can find linked on this week's Defender Radio blog, remains one of the single most influential documents of my career. If you're an aspiring or working journalist, podcaster, blogger, or any other kind of communicator, I strongly urge you to read it in full. It will change the very way you operate. Now, because I try and keep this podcast family-friendly, let's say I just grew frustrated with my compatriots in the media. There seemed to be no shame in promoting sensationalism, no consulting with experts for another perspective in a case of conflict, blankly accepting witness accounts without challenge, even in the face of wildly flawed logic, and, worst of all, no acknowledgement that any of this could have a negative impact on the community or the animals. I wrote an article on the power of fear, particularly as it relates to coyotes. I believe it was Michael Runtz with whom I spoke about how the public reacts to wildlife in print and in real life. I also spoke with a therapist who, using their knowledge of anxiety disorders, explained that just reading about someone's frightening experience in a newspaper is enough to cause the triggering of fight-or-flight responses. That fear can then be associated generally with what they read. That is, people can actually become afraid of something they've not experienced because they read well-written, harrowing accounts of someone else's experience. It wasn't long after this article was published that I was told about a study by Dr. Shelley Alexander at the University of Calgary. Portrayal of Interactions Between Humans and Coyotes, Content Analysis of the Canadian Print Media. Among the fascinating findings Shelley unearthed, she made a simple comparison of the kind of language used in the media to describe when coyotes come into conflict with people and pets, and when people conflict with or kill coyotes. The results speak for themselves. When discussing people killing coyotes, words like killed, culled, euthanized, and exterminated were common, very straightforward, simple explanations. When coyotes came into conflict with people or pets, though, the phrases changed to the likes of brutal, an unreported plague, tore apart, and so on. There is a clear, measurable bias on coyotes in coverage by the media. But, in my experience, if you try and point that out, journalists tend to get a little irritated. 
For me, the real revelations came when I looked at how a reporter covered a story of a coyote coming into conflict with an off-leash dog, and compared that to how I know they would have covered it had it been a crime or police-related story. What stuck out most then, and I'd say remains the most obvious issue now, is the simple acceptance of witness accounts without challenge. There was one public meeting, and Leslie Sampson was at this one, so you can check with her if you don't believe me. A mother stood up and said that her front and said that her son and his friend were chased on their bicycles by two coyotes, both of whom were about three and a half to four feet high at the shoulder. And then when the boys split up, Uh, During this pursuit to go home, the coyotes split up too and chased each one all the way home. Now, conveniently, no such behavior had been reported in the area before or after the incident. No one witnessed it, and the coyotes, which would have been roughly the size of prehistoric dire wolves, were never reported to be of such a size again. But this mother was sure her son wouldn't lie and told the newspaper as much. Another incident in that time frame was a magazine reporting, without challenging, a woman who said, while on a walk with her two labs, a coyote attacked without provocation. He came out of the shrubbery and grappled briefly with one dog. Then, when she looked up, she saw a whole semicircle of coyotes, at least a half dozen, were standing around her, watching. Her dogs reared up and grappled again with the coyote who had approached and chased them all off. This story is patently absurd for a whole lot of reasons, and while both of the incidents I've mentioned may be born in truth, they'd taken a cab to Pearson International Airport and a connecting flight through O'Hare and were somewhere over the Pacific by the time they were told. Now, I, I may sound kind of angry, or at least irritated, when I recall these stories. That's because I still see them regularly. Stories of this magnitude continue to get published without the simple act of asking someone who may know if the behavior relayed by a usually upset witness is possible or makes any kind of sense. There was even one story in British Columbia where a witness told a journalist that a conservation officer told them a cougar who had bitten but not killed their pet had tasted blood and would be out to finish off her dog. Now, that sounded extreme to me, especially as all of the other comments from the CEO were quite reasonable. I contacted him, and sure enough, he emphatically denied saying any such thing, and also pointed out how ludicrous it was, period. I then contacted the journalist who, despite my assertions of misrepresentation, couldn't fathom why the witness would make it up, and refused to correct or retract the story. And it isn't just leaving out that expert opinion. It can even be the placement of it. You may have seen the video of a sea lion jumping up and grabbing a little girl by her dress and pulling her into the ocean. It's really scary to see, even if it's obvious the sea lion has no interest in hurting the little girl. And she wasn't injured, just wet. In fact, the expert interview noted it's most likely that he had been conditioned to jump up and take food from people at the popular wharf and simply thought the white material was a piece of food. But that comment from the expert wasn't in the lead, or even in the second paragraph, to provide the full inverted pyramid of information. It was in the ninth paragraph of the article, after the video of the incident, and after witness reaction. This sounds bad, but add on the fact that journalists are acutely aware that you lose readers with every sentence. That's why the lead and next paragraph or two typically have the relevant or important facts before they get explored in more depth. All of this probably seems trivial, but consider this. In early winter last year, a community in Ontario was told repeatedly through sensationalized accounts that coyotes were living among them and could be dangerous. 
One night, just a few months later, a woman saw what she thought was a sick coyote wandering down the street. So she did what she thought the news had told her to do and called the police. An officer arrived and tried honking and bumping the animal with their patrol car. Eventually, and for reasons I still don't know, they ran over the animal three times, eventually got out of their car and shot the animal in the head. The, quote, sick coyote turned out to be a senior dog who had trouble hearing and had wandered out of a backyard when the gate was blown open by a windstorm. I can't say that the ongoing media accounts of the scary coyotes created the situation. There's no way of knowing. But I find the coincidence of it all pretty damning nonetheless. It's important to note, too, that it isn't just the non-animal folks who can fall victim to this kind of problem. A recent case I wrote about, a muskrat being found with multiple injuries and ultimately dying, caused a stir on our social media. The original account was that a woman saw a group of teens throw a box toward a nearby creek, laughed, and ran away. The witness went over and found a muskrat in the box. The local rehabber examined him and found that he had injuries to his eye, teeth, and cuts alongside his mouth. It is likely that these injuries were caused by a person, but until results from a pending necropsy are in, we simply don't know. In the news release and blogs I prepared for the fur bears on this case, I tried to point out that a lack of information existed, and that's what we wanted. Information and the truth. I noted that it was possible the teens had actually tried to help the muskrat, and someone or something else was responsible for the injuries. As police investigated, they did find the teens, who admitted to finding the injured muskrat, then taking him home to a parent who tried finding someone to help. When they couldn't, the muskrat was wrapped in a blanket, put in a box, and left near the creek from which he came. Not ideal, but a reasonable course of action. This change was reported, and sadly, many social media users continued to blame the teens, and in some cases, wished or promoted violence against them. Now that's a wholly different conversation, the violence, but it does illustrate that when we're constantly expecting one truth to exist all the time, in this case the callous or cruel treatment of animals by people in general, we see it, even in the face of evidence that shows it to not be true. This comes up again when we see cute videos of animals and read headers on them that lead us to believe it's an adorable moment that happened to be caught on video. For me, the polar bear petting a dog in Manitoba comes to mind. It hit social media on a Thursday and was viewed millions of times. By Monday, the CBC had learned and reported that at the same location, a polar bear had killed and consumed a dog. That's because the man on whose property it all went down fed the polar bears and chained up his dogs. One night, he didn't feed the polar bears, so they helped themselves. That's the power of media, and why I'm always the downer who urges caution, analysis, and avoids assumption. The reason for this rant episode isn't to make anyone feel bad or to be too preachy. I get caught up in assumptions and excitement too, and it's often up to my colleagues, friends, or my wife to talk me down so I can see that whole picture again. What I want to achieve with this episode, and the rant you've listened to, is threefold. I want to remind you to have a healthy skepticism and not make any large assumptions in what you consume from the media, regardless of your position or the potential bias of the content. I want to point out that the media does get it wrong and ask that you please comment respectfully, to the media who got it wrong and suggest solutions. Perhaps Dr. Beckoff and Packwood Freeman's papers would be a good start. And most importantly, I really wanted to rant about this. It's a subject I'm often going on about in private, and if you need evidence, I'm sure my colleagues and family can all provide proof by offering what they do to block me out when I get going. 
The media is imperfect and at times can be dangerous to wildlife. But it's still an integral part of our society, and the people who dedicate their lives to it deserve respect. The problem is, the animals with whom we share the world deserve respect, too. And they can't write letters to the editor. That's all for this week. I hope you had, or will have, a wonderful long weekend. For Defender Radio, this is Michael Howie, reminding you to stay informed and stay strong. Stay strong.